Well, hello, Trinity family. It is my pleasure to welcome you as we are starting a brand new series this weekend that we are calling Letters for Exiles. And the reason that we chose that title is because of the experience that many of us have been facing in a world that is constantly changing. As I looked up the definition of exile, what I found in the dictionary is that most dictionaries define an exile as someone who is living in a voluntary or forced absence from their home or country. It's a word used to describe the experience that many people face when they're living far away from the comfortable and the familiar. And as I was continuing to do some research about this, I came across a blog post that was written by a psychologist working with Doctors Without Borders. And what this psychologist specifically was focused on was working with refugee families, people who've been forced to flee from their home country, largely because of war and violence. And this is what that psychologist said. He said, many of our patients show symptoms of post-traumatic stress, excessive nervousness, permanent fear, and a state of hypervigilance. The experience of exile can actually lead people into greater isolation or drive them to lash out in anger. And as I was thinking about that, I, I, I couldn't help but think about many of the ways that we have reacted to the constant changes that we've been facing in our world over the past several years. I mean, we've gone through some pretty serious crises. We faced a global, plan, uh, global pandemic. We've seen political and social upheaval, uncertain economic times. And I think that a lot of what was described Described by this psychologist are the very things that many people are feeling today. We are feeling out of place, fearful and anxious. Like the safe and the comfortable and the familiar have all disappeared and the result is often higher levels of stress and anger. And so the question is, how do we respond to that? And that's why I think the letters of First and Second Peter are so important because in those letters, the Apostle Peter opens the letter with these words. He says, to God's elect exiles scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Peter is writing to people who are experiencing exile who are experiencing the uncertain, who are experiencing dislocation and discomfort in an incredibly uncertain world. And that's why we thought this series was so appropriate for us now, because it speaks to that experience and it asks the question, is there a better way to live? One that doesn't drive us to isolation or fear, uh, anger or anxiety, but one which actually brings peace and hope. This is important for us because, again, Peter was writing at a time of great upheaval. He himself was a prisoner in the city of Rome, and at that time, the Roman Empire was ruled by the Emperor Nero, an incredibly harsh uh, emperor, one who actually helped to begin some of the very first formalized persecutions of the church. And, and already at that time in Asia Minor, among the churches to whom he's writing, they've already begun to experience some of this systematic persecution. It's a time in which they are afraid, in which they're anxious and perhaps even angry. And yet Peter writes to them to show them that there's a different way to live, which is really quite surprising when you consider who Peter is. 
We first meet Peter in the Gospels when he's nothing more than a humble fisherman. Jesus comes along and invites him to follow him, to become one of his disciples. And what we see is Peter's actually welcomed into Jesus' inner circle, one of Jesus' closest three friends. And yet what we also know about Peter is he was kind of a hothead. He often opened his mouth before thinking about it. He was rash, he was quick to action, but slow to actually think through the implications of what he was saying and what he was doing. And yet by the time we get to 1st and 2nd Peter, decades later, he has grown into a mature leader. One who has words of comfort to those who are facing difficult and uncertain circumstances. Those who might be tempted, as he once was, to lash out in fear or in anger. And so I really want us to look at how did Peter himself get there? And specifically to look at one particular instance in his life, which I think helps us to understand not only who Peter is, but the kind of guidance that he then provides in the letters that we're going to be looking at over the next several weeks. It's an encounter that we find in Matthew chapter 16, verses 21 through 28. We find that Jesus is walking on the road with his disciples. He's been teaching and preaching about the kingdom of God. They've watched him heal people of diseases, cast out demons, and even raise the dead. And he then starts to ask them some questions. He asks them who the people say that he is. And the disciples respond. Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Jesus says, but what about you? Who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answers, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And to this, Jesus praises him. He says, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this is not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. It's this incredible statement of promise and blessing for Peter, what you might consider the high point of his discipleship career at that moment. And yet, something really fascinating happens right after this moment. It says, from that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders and the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. But then Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, this shall never happen to you. And Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Wow, what a reversal, right? Peter goes from like the height of his discipleship career to now being called Satan, an opponent, an adversary, being told to get behind Jesus because he's nothing more than a stumbling block. Why? Why does Jesus react so strongly to Peter? Why does he have such such harsh words for him? Well, honestly, it's because Peter had a really broken idea of just what it meant for Jesus to be the Messiah. Because he was right. Jesus was the Messiah. He is the Savior that they had been waiting for. But, but back in those times, the expectation, not only of Peter, but of all the Jewish people, is that their Messiah would be a conquering king. One who would come into Jerusalem in triumph and lead his people to overthrow the Roman Empire, lead them to political and economic freedom and stability and prosperity. That's why Peter then turns around and starts to rebuke Jesus when Jesus says, all right, well, knowing that I'm the Messiah, I'm going to go to Jerusalem where I'm actually going to be persecuted by our people. 
where I'm going to be betrayed by our people and ultimately executed by our people. And that vision of, of what it meant to be the Messiah clashed with everything that Peter believed about what it meant for Jesus not only to be the Messiah, but for him as Peter to follow him. You see, what we find in this text is that it's possible to follow Jesus for the wrong reasons, in pursuit of a kingdom other than the kingdom of God. You see, Peter had a very specific idea of what it meant to follow a savior. He believed that if he followed Jesus, it would lead him to a place of, of prosperity, of prominence, of security, of safety, and yes, of power. In fact, we find in many points throughout the Gospels, Peter and the other disciples are constantly jockeying for position and authority, wondering who's going to sit at Jesus' right hand, who's ultimately going to be able to, to join him in his glory and in his power when he comes into his kingdom and takes on his, his throne. And yet here Jesus says, that's not the way my kingdom operates. My kingdom is an upside down kingdom. My kingdom is one which actually will lead you into places of powerlessness, will lead you into places of persecution and pain, will lead you into places of suffering and hardship first. And that's why Peter reacts the way he does, and it's why Jesus rebukes him so strongly. Because you see, at the heart of, of Peter's following of Jesus up to this point was that Peter wanted a crown, not the cross. Peter wanted glory, not hardship. He was following Jesus, yes, but he was following him for the wrong reasons. You see, this was the same temptation that Jesus himself faced. Earlier in the Gospel of Matthew, and Jesus, right before Jesus begins his public ministry, we learn that he was actually out in desert places, fasting and praying, and it's there that he was actually tempted by the devil himself. And the devil made him an offer. He said, I will give you all the kingdoms of the world if you simply bow down and worship me. And Jesus says, no, because Jesus is not willing to take any crown without the cross. He knows that in order for him to do what he's called to do as the Messiah, as the Savior, he has to lay down his life for his people. He has to die to set them free from a far greater enemy than Rome the enemy of sin and death, which is crippling not only his own people, but the entire world. And so he rejected the devil's offer. And see, this very temptation that Jesus overcame and defeated in the desert is the one that Peter and the disciples succumbed to on the road because they're following him for the wrong reasons. And it's often in moments of crisis moments of difficulty and pain and suffering that our true allegiances are ultimately found out. It's when suddenly Peter's whole idea of what it meant to follow Jesus is threatened that we see where his heart really lies. It lies on the road to glory, not suffering. And I think the same is true for us today. And it was true for Peter's readers back then. That when we encounter crisis and difficulty and hardship, that strain and that pressure reveals the cracks and shows us where our true allegiances really lie. 
This really came home to me just a couple weeks ago. We had invited Ed Stetzer, the director of the Billy Graham Center at Wheaton College, to come and speak to our leaders and our small group leaders. And he was talking about just these past couple of years. And he said, one of the things that we've seen in the church, as you look at the data, and as you, you really dive into the studies, is that there is a kind of reorganization happening that is unprecedented in recent history. Ed Stetzer called it the great sort, in which he said Christians are switching churches and denominations at a rate that we haven't seen over the past several decades, maybe even the last century. But what, here's what he noted about that. The reasons why we're changing had nothing to do with theology. He said people were switching churches because of their perceived leanings of their leaders. They were switching churches based on what they thought their church, the, their pastor's views of politics were. They were switching churches on the basis of how their churches responded to masks or no, or no masks, vaccines or no vaccines, whether they spoke out about politics or didn't say anything, how they responded to things like Black Lives Matter and January 6th and so on and so forth. What he found is that Christians Christians were switching churches for every other reason other than the mission of Jesus. And it makes me wonder if maybe we're a little bit closer to Peter than we want to admit. If maybe some of the reasons why we follow Jesus is for kingdoms other than the kingdom of God, for promises other than what Jesus himself guarantees. And it's really important to note exactly what Jesus says to Peter as he goes on a little bit further because Jesus puts his finger on this issue. After telling Peter to get behind him, calling him a stumbling block, he says this. He says, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. You see, in moments of crisis, we tend to look for our enemies out there. We try to kind of divide up our world into kind of an us versus them mentality as a way of defining who's safe and who's not and sticking with the people that we like based on common interests and be able to reject everybody else who might threaten or question who we are and why we're here. For some reason, there's this broken tendency within us to divide up the world that way because we think that that's the road to strength, security, power, and peace. And yet what Jesus is saying here is he's saying the real enemy is inside of us. That if you want to be a disciple of Jesus, you have to deny yourself and take up your cross and follow him. I love how Jeff Gibbs in his beautiful commentary on Matthew says the following. He says, living in each disciple is the dark conviction that can destroy unity and do untold damage to the cause and name of Christ. This conviction can take the form of ambition, a disguise considered good even in the church. He says it's possible to follow Jesus, to be a Christian, but to do so for the wrong reasons. To dress up our real, our, our real allegiances in religious language only to pursue our own ends. And what Jesus is saying here is he's saying that part of you has to die that the life of a Christian to take up one's cross is intentionally to reject the world's easy answers and solutions, the world's way of, of getting what we ultimately want through, through uh, power and through strength, through fame and influence. He says to be a part of the kingdom of God is to operate on a totally different level. 
to operate in a way that actually reflects the heart of Jesus. I love how, how Gibbs goes on and says this. He says, we have a tendency to think and insist that God's way of dealing with the world and its evil should conform to our way. That is a way of power and success. But to deny ourselves mean that we, uh, means that we will not assume or believe that God's way of working in the world will conform to our expectations or definitions of success or efficiency or glory. You see, Jesus chose a different way. He chose a different way to save the world. It was the way of service and obedience and suffering. A road that ultimately led to sacrifice and death. And yet, it also led to one of the greatest reversals imaginable, that through his death and his resurrection, he brought life and salvation. That rather than dividing the world up into us versus them, punishing those on the outside and rewarding those on the inside, he laid down his life for everyone. To undo the barriers that we try to draw between ourselves and each other and between ourselves and God. He said, at the end of the day, the problem that we all face, it runs right through the core of every single human heart. And in moments of pressure and uncertainty, it often lashes out in anger. And yet Jesus comes and undoes it all by showing us an entirely different way of living. One that is radically obedient to God that is willing to lay down our own rights in order to serve others, a way that ultimately reflects sacrifice on behalf of bringing life to those around us. One that doesn't divide up the world into us versus them, but a way in which Jesus himself calls us to love our enemies, to pray for those who persecute us, to serve those who come against us. He says, in doing so, you show yourselves to be children of my Father in heaven because that's exactly what God himself did for us. Rather than condemning and judging our world, he came into it to rescue us and it cost him his own life. And yet, what Jesus says is he says that that calling to take up your cross also brings with it a promise. Listen to how he goes on. He says, whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will find it. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels, and then he will reward each person according to what they have done. What Jesus says is, he says, yes, it requires saying no to the ways of the world, but when you do, you will find true life. You'll find a kind of life that the world, with all of its success and power, can't possibly offer. A greater purpose that's found by turning our backs on the ways of the world and embracing the way of the cross. Because to take up our cross is to intentionally choose a different way of living, one that ultimately looks more and more like Jesus. And that when we do so, what we discover is that God is a God who actually brings light out of darkness, who brings salvation out of suffering, who brings life beyond death. He's not a God who stands at distance from the brokenness of the world, but one who enters into it and in doing so, in, in serving and sacrificing that way, brings a whole different kind of life, one that the world desperately needs and yet so rarely understands. And he's saying, when you do that as my people, life breaks in and hope is truly found.
You see, our world is tired of the church saying that we follow Jesus and yet living just like the rest of the world, playing into the same kinds of power struggles and political games that they see on the news and all around them. I remember David Kinnaman in, in his groundbreaking research with Barna when they wrote their book on Christian found that one of the things that turned people off from Christians is that they say they follow Jesus and yet they don't look anything like the one they proclaim to believe in. And what Peter is calling the exiles to, and what we're gonna see as we go through First and Second Peter's, he's calling them to a radically different way of living, one that he himself had to learn, a way of living that looks like our savior, one in which grace and forgiveness, service and self-sacrifice become the order of the day because it upends our world's expectations and shows them that there really is a God out there who is full of never-ending love, infinite compassion, a kind of mercy that reaches down even to the darkest of places and raises people up to bring new life, a way that actually shows the world the Savior who's come to rescue us. I think that's part of the reason why Peter begins his first letter with a prayer. After greeting the elect exiles who are scattered throughout Asia Minor, he says this. He says, grace and peace be multiplied to you. He doesn't pray for strength or power. He doesn't pray for security or safety. He prays that grace and peace would be multiplied to God's people. Because as they live out of grace and peace, they will truly be able to bring hope to the world around them. That they will be able to truly bring light in dark places, salvation where there's suffering, life where there's death. But it all begins here now by realizing that to follow Jesus means, yes, taking up our cross, but recognizing that it's in the way of the cross that true life is ultimately found. My prayer for us as we move through this series together is that we would discover a whole different way of living. That in the face of our own fears and anxieties, our own anger and frustrations, we would experience true peace and joy. And if that's you and you're longing to know what that life looks like, we wanna invite you to join us as we journey through these letters together because ultimately what they're gonna show us is that we have a God who's able to overturn all the brokenness of our world and give us a kind of life that only he can deliver. So would you join us as we go on this journey together? To that end, I wanna invite you to pray with me. Lord God, we do indeed pray that you would teach us what it means to live a different kind of life. I love that your call to take up our cross is also joined with a promise that true life will be found when we follow you. And so Lord, I pray that you would reveal to us maybe where some of our broken allegiances lie that we would learn to follow you for your sake and according to your ways and not ultimately to get what we want or what we desire. Help us not to live the way, according to the ways of the world because Lord, we see how it just doesn't work. Every time we turn on the news, every time we scroll through social media, we just see how the ways of this world are broken. But Lord, you have a way of bringing wholeness out of brokenness. You have a way of bringing light out of darkness, salvation out of suffering, life out of death. And so it's for that and that reason alone, Lord, we pray that you would help us. That just as you revealed yourself to Simon Peter by the power of your Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit, you would work new life within us that grace and peace would be multiplied 
that through it we would truly learn what it means to be your people. Exiles, yes, but chosen and loved. Loved and sent. So that more and more people would learn to look, live, and love just like you. It's in your name we pray, Lord Jesus. Amen.